right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 224. And with that number, we're going to give a shout out to Rita Noadike. She scored the 224th Women's World Cup goal all time in 1999 against North Korea. Noadike, who was the longest serving captain in Super Falcons history, i.e. Nigeria, she scored the game winner in that 2-1 group stage game, or group stage win for Nigeria, and led the squad to its only Women's World Cup quarterfinal appearance. 99 was the only year that they got out of the group stage. And last weekend, Nigeria won the Women's Africa Cup of Nations for the ninth time, edging South Africa on penalties. All right, so two chats today, first with Jen Gordon of Equalizer Soccer. Jen and I recap last weekend's NCAA Division I's College Cup action and look ahead a bit to January's NWSL College Draft. Then I checked in with Rich Laverty of the Offside Roll podcast, who was one of the driving forces behind the creation of Guardian Sports' Top 100 Female Footballers annual list. So Rich and I talk about the process of creating such a list and also about England getting officially named as the host for the 2021 Euro. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with another soccer Jen, that being, of course, Jen Gordon from Equalizer Soccer, one of their longtime contributors who likes to write sometimes about college soccer. And and Jen, it was kind of an exciting college soccer weekend. Uh, it was definitely different than I think a lot of people thought it was going to be going into it. Um, I think that just because, not just because, but um, in large part because of the 45 uh, game win streak that Stanford had. I think everybody thought that despite the injuries and the setbacks they had this season, that they would pull it out. Um, and that's not what happened. So it was a, it's kind of an exciting weekend in that, in that respect. Um, and then you had a lot of kind of interesting storylines with um, back backup keepers stepping up, um, you know, exciting def- defensive goals. So um, a lot of stuff to behold. Well, first, let's talk about the semifinals. And we had uh, the top seeds in each of the four regional brackets make it to the final final four. It's been a while since that happened. So, of course, it's kind of funny to see the graphics on the screen where it's like number one versus number one and number one versus number one. Um, but it, it's, it's kind of cool when that happens. So the first semifinal, we had... North Carolina versus Georgetown, second semifinal, Florida State versus Stanford. All of those teams except Georgetown have won before. Um, so we knew it was a pretty good chance that we'd have a, a repeat champion. So that that first semifinal, North Carolina, Georgetown, I mean, it, it's easy to go, oh, North Carolina, they're so good, blah, 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 blah. And, and it even frustrated me a little bit to hear Jen Hildreth and Julie Foudy talk so much about North Carolina's history, where I felt like they should be saying, hey, this is the first time North Carolina's in the Final Four in six years. Yeah, I think that, you know, that, that history is always going to be something that we talk about and it should be talked about. I think it's kind of like with women's basketball, you, sh- you still talk about Tennessee, but Tennessee isn't, um, you know, isn't what it was 15 years right. ago, right? So I think that you have to understand a little, maybe a little bit more that um, the game's kind of evolved and it's different. And um, unless UNC wins again next year, there'll be two teams that have more championships in this decade than UNC will end up with, which is. Um, wow. Kind of that, That's a nice yeah. stat, Jen Gordon. Wow. I love it. Yeah. Um, obviously Stanford and Florida state being those two, two teams, which I think is really interesting because I think if there is, a team that's going to pick up that mantle as the, you know, Venus of a women's college soccer, it would be one of those two. So it's kind of interesting. Um, but I, I think also too, um, by talking so much about the history, you're, you're not concentrating on um, kind of what's happening now with the team and um, how the teams had to evolve. And they've had to shoulder this um, incredible burden of, you know, 
you know, two years ago, they graduated the first class to never win a championship. So that's continuing. And, um, right. and they're sort of trying to create their own legacy while still dealing with this, this shadow. Um, and there's, a, you know, win or lose, there's still going to be some players um, that come out of UNC that are going to play in the pro league and will probably see time with the national team. I think uh, a big takeaway for me this weekend was um, just seeing Emily Fox and Julia Ashley you know, in person for two games and seeing how incredible they were um, getting up and down the flanks. And it made me just think, like, this this is what Jill Ellis wants. Um, and if you, you're looking for that type of outside back, I think that UNC is a great program to be at just because you're going to be going high octane all the time and you're going to have to sometimes track back really quickly to, to keep a counterattack from going. So, um that's, that's that would be probably what I would say about UNC is it's kind of like they're trying to blaze the um, trying to blaze their own path while still dealing with this um, you know history. It's it's almost like I would say something like um, say your older brother or sister is this you know soccer or basketball or whatever star and then you want to follow you want to be in that sport as well. It's sort of having to deal with that while you're trying to deal you know create your own path. It's sort of this. Um, dichotomy and that's and that's a really good analogy and and I like that you, know, you also mentioned that by focusing on the history, which is interesting it is an important point to make, but I do think it takes away from what North Carolina is right now, you know the soccer that's happening on the field right now um, and kind of related to that, I was confused. The whole time watching, every time I'm looking at a Navy jersey, my brain is like, that's not North Carolina. So is there any chance you know why they were wearing Navy blue? (laughs) I have no idea. I was hoping they would wear their Argyle-like jerseys because I thought they were really cool this year. They were were like light blue and they had an Argyle print on the back. I have no idea. Um, I don't know if that was more to create a color contrast with um, Georgetown, since Georgetown does incorporate gray in their jerseys. I don't know if maybe that was right. something to do with broadcast. But yeah, that would, but it, that would but be they've never, Yeah, but they've never had a Navy oh, before. It was, just, it, was just, it was just strange. So, I mean, there, there's probably a reason for it. And I was guessing maybe, okay, since they didn't play at Fetzer Field this season because it's under construction, then maybe that's like a, you know, this is a different season or, or something like this, you know. Um, but it was it was it was just strange. Um, I feel now like Georgetown. A, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say I feel like they've had like darker blue jerseys, but they've had like this the Carolina blue in them. I feel like I've seen jerseys yeah. like that before. Yeah, like um, more. Yeah, yeah, more more of the light blue. Yeah, yeah. But that's- well, let's talk a little bit about Georgetown. Um, you know, the underdog from the perspective of not having won a championship before, but, you know, really strong team coming in, obviously number one seed in in their region. Um, And it was a really close game, especially when you factor in that they lost their starting goalkeeper to injury and that the, you know, other keeper has to come in and and make a PK save her first touch. Right. Or I mean like a minute after coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's really a shame because Sheckman has been such a it's in one hand it's a huge shame because Sheckman's been such a critical crucial part of them getting to where they're at. I think she's had something like forty seven shutouts in the last three seasons that she's been there. Um, and you, you know you never and she's a senior too that just um it it really you know who no who no matter who you're rooting for or whatever you you feel for that right. But Lauren Gallagher comes in and makes that insane penalty save, and um, you you kind of think like that's her moment, right? Like she's waited yeah. years for that moment, and she stepped up and she delivered. And I think it was so interesting to me because I've you know been in Maryland, I've seen Georgetown a lot over there, uh, the course of the time I've been um, really watching college soccer, and I think. The interesting, most interesting thing I think David Nolan said, the head coach for Georgetown in the press conference, was just how they were un, you know, they've been unfazed by everything they've had to go through to get here, and um, you know, nothing phases them, whether it's dealing with weather and having to have their games moved, or 
um, giving up a goal and uh, in an NCAA tournament game and, and coming from behind to win. Um, and you could kind of see that, right? Like, even though they were playing, you know, UNC, and it was essentially a road game, um, they battled. And they proved that even though they don't play in one of the three or four top, you know, what we consider the top conferences, they can they can hang in. And they have talented players who are, you know, definitely have the potential of, um, you know, playing professionally. Um, I, I think it was kind of a shame because I, I don't think they see teams that are quite as athletic and physical as UNC on a, a regular basis, although they did beat Baylor the week before. Um, it kind of, you could tell it did knock some of their um, more skillful players off their game. I think particularly I noticed that uh, Paula Jamina Watnick, one of their midfielders, just made a lot more errors in her passing than she normally would. And so it kind of felt like Georgetown didn't really play their game just because of how good UNC is from a physical and, and athletic manner. Um, but I, I do think that Georgetown could definitely see, um, could definitely, this could definitely be continual growth in, in the next couple of years. I know they're going to lose, um, some important players like Caitlin Farrell and Kyra Carusa and Ariel Sheckman, um, to name a few, but I think they still got a core there that could compete and Dave Nolan has a tendency to pick up some, um, solid transfers and also recruit fairly well. So, um, Nothing to hang their heads heads about. Two semifinals in three years is an outstanding accomplishment. And, you know, it's easy to maybe overlook the fact they didn't make a final, but I think that still sends a statement that they're here and they're they're ready to compete on the national stage. And when you think about that, you know, they didn't give up that goal to Carolina until, what, the last two or three minutes of the second overtime yeah. period. You know, it, it's like they, they were in the game the, the whole time. So definitely, definitely something you can build on, you know, for next season. And then the second semifinal had a very different flavor to it, where by the end of the first half, Florida State is up 2-0 on Stanford, a team that the entire previous two seasons had, you know, been trailing goal-wise, what, a combined 15 minutes, you know, um, and even though, you know, you have this sense of all these names on, on Carolina, especially ones connected to the U.S. national team program, that it's like, can they really come back from this? So talk about, you know, what we saw from Florida State and, and how, you know, they kind of reestablished themselves and maybe what, you know, what was the flaw in, in Stanford's plan? I think... So what you saw was what we think of Florida State, which is their suffocating defense and then their just ability to um, hold on to the ball. And basically, mm -hmm. that's what Stanford likes to do. So I think whenever you play a team, if you do what they like to do and they can't do what they like to do, um, it makes them really uncomfortable. Like, you know, I know North Carolina doesn't particularly like playing high-pressing teams. It's just how it is. You don't like to play a team that's going to do the same thing you do because it makes it hard for you to do that thing. Um, and I really think the thing that really stood out to me was that both of those goals for the Seminoles came from defenders and um, particularly Gab Gabby Carl's goal. It, it was, that was like pure heart, man. She just held on to the ball and kept, kept kind of driving towards the center of, you know, the field and got that shot off um, across her body. And which was a, intelligent play um and it was also you know maybe not something you'd always see i think sometimes you would see players that um maybe be a little bit more likely to go to ground and look for a call um but she stood on her feet and sent it in and it was a pretty phenomenal goal um and it just shows kind of florida's ability to have those players in the back that can still have that mind to go forward which is i think we don't see that a lot in the college game, but I think hopefully that um, maybe sometimes in the years years to come, we'll see a little bit more of that, but it was a particularly good to see. I think for Stanford, it was mainly that they were put in a very uncomfortable position in a position they hadn't, like you had said, been in a lot. And I, I wonder, um, you know, they say that, you know, 
pressures what makes diamonds. Um, maybe just, and obviously Stanford's great, and I'm, I don't mean to take anything away from them, but maybe just not having that pressure um, previously, you know, be, not having been uh, down a goal or being in that situation where you're trying to get back into the game previously. Um, right. Made it difficult for them, right? Just, I, and that, it's interesting because they had some chances that had they been on frame, and they, it's not like they were off that much, that maybe they had gotten an, a goal. And if you get a goal, then maybe they would have gotten some confidence, and maybe it's a completely different game, but it's like they just, you kept waiting for them to get going, and they never did. Yeah, and it's it's easy, too, to be surprised when they have such a deep roster, but they were missing, you know, s- some key players. Not that they hadn't succeeded without those players, but you know, maybe they just come to the end of the line of they, you know, they did everything they could do having, you know, without having Sophia Smith and Tierna Davidson and, you know, just. Yeah. You know, yeah. I um, think particularly not having Sophia Smith um, in a game like that is, is critical. Like, I think that may, if you just had that one player and you can't play that game, but if they had that one player, that gives Macario somebody to build, to build off of. It takes some of the pressure off her. I do think that that would have been, you know, game changing. But you know, at that point in the season, every single every every single team has injuries they have to deal with, right? So it just comes down to some of it is luck, you know. And um, I'm pretty sure probably any national championship coach would tell you that a little bit of it is luck. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then to give up for Stanford to give up that second goal right before halftime, which was not, you know, nearly equivalent to what Gabby Garl had had scored, you know, a few minutes before, where it was mostly, you know, a keeper bobble. Um, you know, that's that's a hard thing to come back from, especially as you're you're walking into the locker room. And um, yeah, it's definitely one of those situations where I think it was a combination of the weather. And I think that AJ also felt like she had the ball and then she, she didn't. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think it, it would be difficult regardless, but considering they were already down a goal, I think that's just completely deflating, you know, just had yeah. two more minutes to wait it out and go in the locker room and make some changes. And yeah. Yeah. And and it shows you how, how close these games really are. I mean, all three games of the college cup, nothing was a blowout. Everything was played intensely, you know, so, so the final, you know, it's a one zero game. Um, and, you know, North Carolina is in it till, till the last minute, but, you know, Florida state's defense held up and it was just, you know, one kind of magical moment that seemed, seemed a little bit anticlimactic to me just because it didn't, it didn't seem like a, you know, dramatic goal, but it's it's the kind of thing where it's the the payoff of you know as you wrote about like lots and lots of hard work, lots of time spent by these players building chemistry, practicing plays, and so their timing is so good that something that looks like not very much to us is is the result of perfect timing. I think the thing about the finals for me was. I honestly think that it could have gone either way. It was definitely UNC had some moments um, in the first half. Uh, Rachel Dorwith had a header that went just wide of goal. And then in the second half, after Florida State scored, I remember um, Taylor Otto nearly got played in and she would have just had the goalkeeper to beat. Um, but it seemed like either uh, Taylor, Taylor Otto was surprised that the ball got through and kind of hesitated a little bit or the ball was just a little there was a little too much on it and um it's one of those things that you think in a game like that that could have been the difference you know it wasn't um yeah it was it definitely felt to me it was interesting having these two teams played them the month before and seeing how it was different um you know in that game there were five goals scored um but I think that shows the the progression, I think, um, kind of of both teams and how defensively they've gotten better. Um, so I think that was interesting to me is how I really thought walking away from it. I was like, that could have, UNC could have won that game too. Um, and I thought Dallas Dorsey being the, you know, 
hero in the game was one of those stories that everybody loves too, because there's a blue collar kid. He's not, not, you know, four year starter, not this, you know, all ACC, all four years, yada, yada, right. yada player that um, gets hot at the right moment, scores the vast majority of her goals since, you know, from that ACC final game until the championship game and walks away, you know, with the offensive player of, of the tournament. And then obviously more importantly with an ACC title and with a national title. So I thought that was um, really great. And I think the other thing that um, I really took away is just how, how good this Florida state team could be too in the future. Um, You know, obviously they are going to lose some, some players, but they're going to still have a, a really great cast of characters um, com- coming back next year. And they also had some injuries that took out some of their freshmen. Um, at one point, they were starting five freshmen. So um, it'll be interesting to see if they're – I expect them to be in the mix again next year. But it'll be interesting to see where if they uh, get even better, especially with that midfield that they have, um, and, and see what happens from there. And I think it's really interesting how they – how Mark Krikorian can take very diverse international talent and mix them with, like you were talking about the blue collar Florida player, who's, you know, not necessarily your, your four year starter and really make a cohesive unit out of all of it. Um, it, it was kind of interesting. Um, when we did press conference, well, we did kind of like, it wasn't really a press conference so much as like you just talk to, you go up and talk right to other coaches or players if you want to. I asked uh, Mark Gregorian about sort of his international recruiting and kind of what he does to help get these players acclimated. And he said um, some of it, it has to do with his academic advisor. Like they go and, and see if it would be better for the player to come in early. And another thing that he does, which I think makes total sense, um, is that every international player rooms with an American. Um, and, you know, part of that is just to help foster relationships and have somebody who's there, um, you know, for the cultural as- aspects too, because that's, it's not that's easy. That's huge. Right? You know? That's huge. I mean, um, I've, I've seen, uh, you know, various NWSL players struggle because they end up rooming with the other national teamer from their same country. And they're not, they don't end up building that, you know, support network with an American that can maybe help them get out a little bit more. Yeah, I think he used the example of um, Gloriana Villalobos and Dana Castellanos. Like, if they roomed together, they would just be speaking Spanish, and then they would perhaps not. Nothing that not that there's anything wrong with um, right. speaking Spanish, but they're here. Part of the reason they come to Florida State is they want to perfect their English, right? Right. So by them rooming with an, with an American, it helps keep them from, it helps them acclimate and make sure that they are forming relationships without, with, outside of maybe that comfort zone. Yeah, um, yeah. You're getting, you're getting off that crutch and you're learning, uh, you're getting better in a new language, you're, you're learning a new culture, and you're bonding with, with your teammates. That's huge. Yeah. That's so really smart. And then he said with uh, like Zhao, they obviously, as much as they can, try to make sure there's something that every meal that she'll want to eat just because the food is so different. Right. Now, I don't think I don't think that's so much a problem for maybe um, some of the European kids. I'm sure some of, at least some of the American food they've been um, like at least exposed to. But I just thought that was interesting how, I mean, he's been doing this since, I mean, most of these, these players are even born, right? Like he's been doing this international recruiting. So I thought that was interesting. It was just something I had to ask, but then couldn't work into anything that I wrote. So I'm glad I got to use it here so that uh, maybe people <laughs> something. Well, and, and it makes me think too, of course, you know, I, I can't help but go back in time. Um, you know, Kokorin's experience from three years coaching the Philadelphia Charge, where he had Chinese players, a German captain the first season, Kelly Smith, Marinette Pichon, um, they had a player from the Czech Republic, you know, that th- he, he got to see that and how to acclimate those players. And and I, yeah. I remember talking to the, the last CEO of WSA of just about the international players in general acclimating. And, and she said it was actually hardest for some of the Brazilians because 
in terms of learning a, a second language and getting used to it, because they generally had the least amount of schooling of all the international players that came to the U.S. So it made learning the grammar and, and structure of things a little bit harder because they just, they just didn't have good schooling in general where, you know, and any of the other ones, it, it was easier. So they were trying to focus more on, you know, like making sure that the Brazilians in San Jose had, had maybe an English tutor or something like that. But that, that that's important. And, and that's so smart yeah. of him that it's, it's that background thing that we as observers don't, don't see on game day, but makes a big difference in terms of how, you know, the, the league, the, the team interacts yeah. with each other. Yeah. So, I think it, so it, 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 go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to move on to the, the, the draft, but, but finish up yeah. with college cup. Um, I was, I was just going to say, yeah, I think, I think um, the other thing is obviously these players are coming to Florida state. They have to take the same like standard exams that American students would have to take. And then you're taking it in a foreign language. So it's, you know, these kids are all, they all have to be pretty intelligent. Like there's just no way I can't yeah. fathom taking uh testing another language so good for them or or you think about Raquel Rodriguez the 2016 draft going up there and you know that was her second language you yeah. know it, it doesn't doesn't sound like it to us but she's like I'm excited thank you blah 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 and yeah that's her that's her second language so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the NWSL college draft not so much the draft mechanics or who needs what for which club but just, you know, having seen the NCAA tournament, I know you follow women's college soccer pretty closely. You know, who really jumps out to you as, you know, a, a top pick for 2019? Um, I think everybody should know the name Haley Mace by now. Um, <laughs> I'd be really shocked if she's not the number one pick. Um, you know, obviously, I, I'm not going to get too too much into detail with this. Like everybody's seen her, but I think just what she did against UNC, bringing um, UCLA back in the game, and she was able to, to score two goals in a minute. Like, that's insane. Um, she's just, you know, she's got that ability to play multiple places. And and um, that was that was in that, the quarterfinal where, so everyone yeah. knows, where um, UCLA was down 2-0. She scored twice to bring it back and, and force PKs. She runs like she's been shot out of a cannon. That's the only <laughs> thing that I can, like, possibly equate that to um and you know anytime a player seeking time with a full national team i think that just kind of solidifies their place in the in the in the draft um but i'll try not to talk about a ton of people that people probably i think ucla unc stanford um those teams i think everybody pretty much knows uh you know there's a lot of i'll just say this quickly there's a lot of seniors at stanford that i could see if they do enter the draft, they're, you know, first round picks. Right. Um, and, you know, everybody's, and then obviously everybody saw what Julia Ashley did. So um, no secrets there. I think um, beyond that, they're, you know, I think every year people are like, oh, this isn't such a good draft or yada, yada, yada. But I think, just like we saw in 2015, um, these kids that get drafted, I shouldn't say kids, these young women that get drafted are going to have a bigger opportunity than maybe they would have had in previous years just because of the World Cup and call-ups that are going to happen because of that. So we could see some some stars or, or some uh, starlets, I should say, that come out of that. Um, I think... Maybe a player not a ton of people have heard of that um, I could see maybe being a, a later steal in the draft would be uh, Paige Moynihan out of Butler. Um, she's one of those uh, wide players that just um, is constantly in the mix offensively, yet she you know is um, in the mix also defensively. Um, she plays a midfielder, but I think that at the next level she'll probably move back to outside back. Um, mm-hmm. But she's definitely just one of those players that, um, you know, you if you see a game and you watch her, you you know, you remember. Just, uh, you know, and it's a team that's very, Bell Butler is very defensively oriented. She's like that spark plug that helps them get the goal that they need to win. Um, uh, and then try not to speak too much about people 
I'm trying not to talk too much about the people in the College Cup. Uh, I'm sure that I haven't had a chance to listen to the actual broadcast yet, but I'm sure uh, Julie Fowdy and Jen Hildreth did a better job on them than I could. Um, <laughs> so, you know, with a lot more insight than I probably have. But um, another player is um, Kayla McCoy from Duke. Um, she scored, I think, 12 goals this year. Because there's some question with uh, Amani Dorsey was her one of her uh, scoring partners for three years. And there was this sort of a question of, like, what could Kayla McCoy do without Amani Dorsey? And she, you know, she scored 12 goals. So that kind of answers wow. that question, I think. Um, she's a tough-nosed player. Um, and, she, you know, you're not you're not going to get her, um, you know, to stop going to goal and, and be, you're just doing what needs to – doing kind of that, that rough part that needs done to get that that goal. Um, so she was used a lot, I think, to help kind of bring up the rest of the attack. Um, and then I think – so I think she'll be someone else that I – if she enters, she gets drafted. I, I think it's just a question of, like, where. But – definitely someone to keep an eye on um you know obviously you do kind of will sell off a little bit this year but i think that was expected when you had that class they had last year um yeah it's just is gonna happen um so I'm trying to think of another player that well and i always uh, think oh. it's interesting to look at um you know the teams that they were in the final four one year and then aren't the next usually because of a big class graduating to see, you know, how well they perform because the, yeah, there's usually some players that were overshadowed by that big class, you know, that were still contributors. Yeah. That's, um, it happens a lot, but then there's also times where maybe a player falls off a little more and you, it's hard to tell if it's because of losing that class or if it's just, just how things work, you know, maybe you, for example, it could have been, this didn't happen with McCoy, but it could have happened that, you know, they just, team had to spend so much more time defending because they lost all those defenders and they were letting too many goals in. So, you know, you, it just kind of snowballed. Um, another player that I probably should have mentioned before now um, was uh, Bunny Shaw. I mean, it, and, you know, obviously she's an international, so it'd be interesting to see if she enters the draft or if she goes elsewhere. Right. But um, she just wreaks havoc, and she is an – I mean, Bunny is a perfect nickname because she's like an Energizer Bunny, right? Like, she just doesn't yeah. quit. Um, and no matter what style a team plays in the NWSL, there's always room for that player, you know, whether or not they're starting or they're coming off the bench, who can just bring it and deal with the athleticism and the physicality that you sometimes see. Um, and you know, we've, we've seen what she can do too. So I maybe shouldn't have talked about her, but I think maybe people might've, since it's been a month or so, maybe people forgot. Um, well, and, and, and to think about, here's a player who's coming out of college, SEC offensive player of the year, you know, came really close to getting to the college cup. Um, and you know, helped her country qualify for the world cup for the first time ever. And you're coming into that world cup year, like, if it weren't a World Cup year, you might not want to use an international spot, you know, when those are limited on on a player that, okay, you know, she's been strong at college, but how is she, you know, at the, at the next level? We're, we're here. Just the the promo value of, you know, she'll be playing at the Women's World Cup, you know, is enough for at least, to, to me, risking that draft pick. Yeah, and I think, you know, she's a kid that's, I shouldn't say kid. She's a young woman who's <laughs> battled so hard to get to where she is. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's such a good story that, um, you know, even someone like me who really tries to stay neutral, you want good things for her, right? Like you just yeah. Know. Um, so I, she's another one I think to keep an eye on. Um, there, uh, uh, there's a defender from UNC, Ali Prisak, who, was on who was on the back line for that national title team a few years ago. Um, I think one of the few holdouts, I guess, from that team that's left over. Um, she's 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 really good at reading the game, um, and you know, obviously playing at, at UNC or UNC, USC, she's faced some you know top competition. So right. um, she's another one I think 
uh, will get drafted if she enters. And that, and that's um, the that's the question for us. And and let's 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 wrap it up with with that as you know the NWSL um, modified the draft regulations a little bit for this upcoming draft that you do not have to exhaust your college eligibility uh, to enter the draft that you can decide, Hey, I'm going to leave college early. I'm only going to play three and NCAA seasons, you know, and, and then go pro. Um, you know, how do you think this is going to affect this year's draft if at all, and then future drafts? I think the impact at least in the immediate future is minimal. I think that, um, these young women are very talented, multi-talented, and um, most of them do want to get the degree and get it now. Um, and, I mean, it's really hard when you're some of these schools that are also top for you know, soccer programs have incredible, uh, you know, educational programs too. So, and, you know, they're costly. So I think it's really hard to leave a scholarship that's worth forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year to go play uh, professionally when that's such a, you know, there's so many things that can happen, right, when you're trying to play professionally. Right. So it's, it's a huge right. risk. So I think, at least over the short term, it's minimal. Um, I think there'll be there'll probably be a few kids or a few young women that want to do that, um, particularly those players that are on the cusp of making the national team. Um, so, or, you know, there'll even be players that decide that's not right for them. Like we saw uh, – Carlin Baldwin, who played for Tennessee for three years, leave early a couple of years ago. Um, basically, she decided she wanted to play soccer and that she would come and finish her degree when, when she was ready to do that. Um, so I, it's, I think I'm one of those people that think that the more options that people have, the better, because not everybody fits in the same box. And that's fine. Right. Um, you know, at the same time, I know there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, worry about the college game not being good for the growth of soccer in this country. Um, I, I'm kind of one of those people that's like, yeah, give them all these options and let the, these people decide what's best for them. Um, just like, you know, you have for baseball, you have college. You can go the college route or you can go the minor leagues and you can make the decision for yourself and different people do different things. And you know what? People on both pathways make it to the pros and, you know, are really do really well. So um, I think it's an exciting development because I think it shows growth, but um, I think people might want to pump the brakes and I could be totally wrong, but I just, I feel like um, these kids have, or these young women have things that they want to accomplish beyond soccer that I'm not sure they'll want to put on hold for that long. So um, I'm interested to see what happens just like everyone else. I, I think you made a really good point that it gives people options and that's that's the best part of it is hey there are multiple paths uh to the pros and different paths work for different people so it it is an it is a good change to see well jen thank you so much for taking the time to talk uh you know college cup ncaa and and of course the upcoming individual draft and and of course you and i will have to talk more in chicago for the draft uh you know as as all the players you know fall in line and we see who gets what, when, and all, you know, all the drama around it. It is probably outside the final, the most dramatic day of the year. (laughs) I think just because there's so many different storylines, right? All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Rich Laverty from the UK, one of my favorite freelance soccer writers from over there, or as as they say, football writers. Um, Rich, it's it's kind of a big day, some big news um, coming out of England for women's soccer. Yeah, um, I mean, we've been very busy with our own project, which we'll talk about soon. But yeah, the Euro announcement yesterday, I mean... We kind of knew that it was going to be England because we were the only bidders. Um, it was only, it was just finding out officially yesterday that we'd met the criteria and which stadiums it was going to be officially and a few other things. So, yeah, it's very exciting. It's a little bit surreal, really. I mean, I haven't properly had a chance with everything that's going on to really sit down and think about it. But you know, we're all going to get to 
cover a major tournament in our, in our own country, which unless you were around covering the game in 2005, which many people weren't, um, it's going to be a pretty it's going to be a pretty cool experience. And especially to have a women's Euro that's following a women's World Cup in Europe. So I would think maybe the buzz would be even higher. Yeah, we've maybe. been a little bit lucky, really, last few years with the Netherlands and France and, and now England. We haven't had um, far to go, really, to cover um, cover the <laughs> women's game. So, yeah, Tokyo might throw a bit of a spanner in the works, but uh, <laughs> we, can't, we can't complain too much. Well, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the Euro. But, of course, the reason I have you on here today is this week is the rollout of the top 100 women's footballers, uh, the joint project between your podcast and Guardian Sport. Um, and, and this is the third year that you, you've done that project. I want to hear from you um, how this originally came about, um, you know, and, and partnering with the Guardian and and getting the amazing roster of, of, of judges. And of course, I don't want to put myself in that category, but you did include me as a judge. But it's like when I look at the list of former players, it's it's so impressive. So talk about how you, why you got it started and how you got it started. Well, two years ago, we started it in 2016. It was, I don't know really. I mean, the Guardian have always done one for the men's game. Um, they've done one for about, seven or eight years now, something like that. I'm not sure exactly, but I was kind of like, you know, why can't the women's game have something like that? Because we've got the FIFA awards and things like that, but you only, only three players or five players or ten players get recognition, and we we basically use the Guardian's template to do ours, and, and we, we use the exact same rules, the exact same voting, and we just got our own panel of uh, managers and coaches, players. And, you know, it was quite small in 2016. And then last year we made it a bit bigger. We expanded the panel a little bit. We got the quotes from from managers around the world because we had much more time to prepare last year. And then the Guardian approached us probably August, August, September. I can't remember exactly. And, you know, they said, look, you do exactly the same as us, except for the women's. We want to do a women's one. Do right. you want to just collaborate, you know, instead of them doing their own and us doing our own and kind of, you know, start stepping on each other's toes kind of thing. Um, they said, do you want to collaborate? We'll put it on our website. You can put it on your website. And and that was that, that you know, we've run it the same way. They've left me to it. You know, I've, I've put the panel together. I've put all the results together, took, took um, put all the voting results together. So it's been busy, but in terms of the panel, I mean, uh, I think it's just because it is so unique and we are the only people that do this, um, you know, people want to be involved. People want to have their say, you know, and it's growing women's football. We're promoting women's football. Um, and I think it reflects in the, the managers and the former players and the media from around the world that, that want to that want to vote, that want to have their say because, you know, they don't get a chance anywhere unless you are a national team manager who gets to vote in the FIFA Best Awards. Anybody else, you know, doesn't get a say in in who the best players are. And, you know, this doesn't just give recognition to the 10 or 15 like last night that were up for the Ballon d'Or. You know, it gives recognition to those that were at the Asia Cup with Japan, you know, won the Asia Cup or players who have just won the Africa Cup of Nations or players who were at the Under-20 World Cup. Um, right. So it's just about, we started it because we wanted to recognise, you know, more players around the world. That's basically what happened. And it's grown from there. And yeah, we're in our third season of doing it now. Well, and I, I like that it is, you know, 100 players and the work that you guys put into it before it even gets to voting is impressive. So, you know, when you sent me the ballot a month ago and that, you know, so many players on there, was it 400, 500 nominated to start? Yeah. Yeah. And um, thankfully sorted by league (laughs) and country, you know, um, because it, it, it reminded me the breadth of women's football that exists 
And it's so nice that there's something that's giving attention to that because like, like you said, with the FIFA best awards, the voting for that, sure. Every country votes on it, but, but that's a strange system where it's like, okay, so one player from each country, the head coach from each country and a designated media rep. So it's trying to be as fair as possible, but it, it means that countries not as engaged, not as active in soccer have the same weight as a country like England or the U.S. or Germany or France that has so many more, you know, um, ways to engage in, in the game. Um, and, you know, as you and I were talking about before we started recording, that it's, it's still very difficult to see a lot of these games. Um, you know, it, it gets better every year. It seems like there's more and more streaming services, but it can be very challenging and or expensive and or you have to know what you're doing with VPNs or illegal feeds to really follow more than than the league that's in your own country. Yeah, it's difficult. And, you know, that's why we did put things a little bit more in detail this year in terms of the voting form to give some notes on players to order them by league because last year it wasn't so bad because we had the European Championships and, you know, it's quite a big tournament and people around the world watch it. And next year, of course, we've got the World Cup. So, you know, that will have a big influence on the the 100, definitely. And uh, whether you live in Asia, Africa, Oceania, America, Europe... You know, the whole world will be watching that. Whereas this year, apart from the Asia Cup, you know, we didn't have much of an international year. You know, it was the usual qualifiers. We had She Believes, Tournament of Nations, things like that that we have every year. But they don't get massive exposure. So it's difficult, you know. And the, the 100 this year is not perfect. It's never going to be. We always say that. We know that. And, you know, that's just one of those things. People... You know, we don't get to watch these players week in, week out like we do in the men's game. You can turn the TV on here in England and you can watch the French League, the German League, the Spanish League. You can watch the Chinese League, you know, the Brazilian League, things like that. In the women's game, you get a few highlights of your own league in your own country. We get a half an hour highlight show of the WSL every Sunday night and that's it. You know, you can watch the NWSL online, but... You know, we don't get to see Leon, we don't get to see PSG, we don't get to see Wolfsburg, unless, like you say, you can find some online streaming or it's, you know, a big Champions League game towards the end when maybe they're televised. So right. it's really difficult, yeah. And I, I think we'll we'll continue to see changes in that direction, but it's it's also such a big it's a big world and there's so many leagues that it's not like anybody can be on top of them, you know, all of the time. And that that's why I appreciate a, a judges panel that's that's so long and, and so broad as what you guys put together that, you know, hopefully from all those pieces you end up with uh, a pretty a pretty strong um, you know, list of of the top one hundred. But how did you you know start putting together names? I mean, is that just players that you had met or Guardian had some contacts or just I mean it it seems like it it's a pretty great list. Yeah, I mean, the, the first year we kind of used people that we knew, people that we had contacts for, and then it just spread from there, really. You know, we started getting in touch with clubs, and, you know, I, I was making more contacts through working in the game year on year and still have this year. And, you know, I'm, I mean, I'll be out of the World Cup draw on Saturday in Paris, you know, and that's a great chance to meet people and connect with people because every manager at the World Cup will be there, you know, and people just hear about it. Some people want to be involved, but, you know, we very, unless someone's busy, which occasionally they are, you know, we had people this year we approached and they said, look, it's just really bad timing, but nobody's ever said no. You know, nobody's ever said, I'm just not interested because, as I said earlier, you know, it's such a unique thing that people really actively want to be involved and it's hard, you know, you've got to vote for 40 players, you've got to vote for them in order, you know, it's really, really difficult, but, you know, people want to be involved, you know, people like Kelly Smith, people like Annika Kran, people like, you know, Joe Montemuro, you know, they want to give up their time and be involved because it's such a unique thing that we're doing. And obviously this year, I think working with The Guardian, you know, it's such a big name. It's a massive publication in the UK. I think that has obviously had 
some sway on people as well that, you know, we are really taking this mainstream now. Yeah, it, it, it feels very, very mainstream. And, you know, so the first 30 came out, uh, you know, we'll know the, the final 10 by, by Friday, but any, any reaction to those, the first 30, um, number 71 to a hundred on the list. Yeah, um, it, it's been quite positive, actually. I was quite nervous last night with it going on the garden <laughs> and, you know, how many comments you get on newspaper websites. But I've been having a look today and, you know, there's a couple, but it, it's it's been largely positive, you know, and some actual discussion as well, you know, people leaving feedback, you know, so-and-so should be higher or so-and-so should be lower or, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing where so-and-so is end, end of the week and, you know, social media's been great. Everyone's been very positive. So, you know, can't promise it'll be like that all week. You know, I'm sure there'll be a few <laughs> contentious choices. Personally, I always think when we get to the top three, the top five, I think we always get it right. I think, and I, that's why I like doing it, you know, off the back of Ballon d'Or or the back of the FIFA Awards because, you know, in 2016, Ada Hegerberg won. Um, when Leon won the Champions League and, and she was the top striker in Europe last year, Lika Martins won. You know she didn't win the other big awards despite the influence she had at the Euros, but she won ours. Um, and I think looking at our top five, six, seven this year, I think we are, without giving much away, I think we're pretty close to, you know, what people would expect. Well, and and I like that you had a stipulation on our ballots that. Uh... You know, a player had to be mentioned on what at least five ballots to even make the hundred. Yeah, you know, we did have to lower that in the end because of the fact that we didn't have um, as many judges as the Guardian do on their men's, but we did have a stipulation that there would be, you know, to, to kind of just ensure that anybody who you know did a one-off vote or a bias vote or something like that, we just. We had to, in the end, it didn't actually come into play because everybody in the 100 met the requirements that we set out anyway. So, um, but yeah, you know, we we want to make it as fair as possible. We want to make it as accurate as possible, and you know, that's what we try and do. But unfortunately, when you leave 72 people, you know, individually to judge, you're gonna have a bit of unpredictability. So. Um, We'll just see how it pans out. I mean, I obviously know the 100. I know what's coming the rest of the week. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Well, and and I'm glad you, you brought up the Women's World Cup draw, which is Saturday in Paris, and mm. you're lucky that, lucky that you get to be, be there. Um, so for the first time, FIFA's doing it just like they did the men's for the first time last year. Uh, all the pots are seated. Um, so the first pot will be the, the, high, the highest six, then the next six, then the next six, then the next six. Now, of course, there's still some geographic restrictions. But what I think is really interesting is we're not going to know until Friday who the top six are. Now, I would imagine that the U.S. and Germany aren't really moving from their places. But uh, I would think that England would still be in the top six, don't you? Yeah, I think probably the top five are safe and then it's probably whether it's going to be Australia or Japan. Um, Australia are sixth, Japan are seventh. I can't remember off the top of my head which way around they are, but, you know, I mean, I don't think it makes a huge, you know, you wouldn't want to draw Japan, but equally you wouldn't want to draw Australia either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Japan, Japan's probably a little bit, you know, because they have that reputation, they've been in the last two finals, they're such a technical team, you know, anybody in the first pot that draws them, you know, that's the toughest game you could get, but equally, you don't want Australia, but you don't want anyone in the second <laughs> pot, you know, you look at you look at Brazil, you look at the Netherlands, you know, the European champions are going to be in the second pot, you've got Sweden, who the US know all about, obviously, and you've got Spain, you know, it's not going to be... The, there's not a single team in that second pot you would look at and actively say we want them because that's the easiest draw. I, I don't think there is one. I'm just happy that we're not going to have a situation like four years ago where instead of using the top six, they use the top five and Brazil. So Sweden basically got screwed out of being a seeded team. Um, 
you know, and then U.S. ends up with that ridiculous, ridiculous group, um, you know. And again, like I think U.S. has played Sweden and Nigeria more, like almost every Women's World Cup. So I'm looking forward to this because of this seeding format, seeing some some much different groups than we've we've seen in the past. And I mean, there's always going to be a group that's harder than the others, but I think avoiding a real group of death situation. I mean, very, very similar to the men's last year, it seemed a little more balanced. You had some groups that were a little easy, but it didn't seem like any group was a group of death. Yeah, I think uh, for me, you know, the, the women's game, every World Cup, you know, four years is such a long time in yeah. this sport because it is progress. it progresses so much every year. So over four years, it progresses massively. I mean, you look at the last World Cup, and there was there were a few games that I think Germany won ten nil or eleven nil in one game. You know, and I don't think you're going to have that. You you even look at the fourth pot, and you look at Chile, you know, who just beat Australia a few weeks ago, and you look at Nigeria, who are the African champions and have always had good players, and then you look at elsewhere, and you look at South Korea and China. You know, they've got some really technical players. New Zealand have always been solid. Scotland, you know, gave the US a really good game recently. And you, there's just so many teams now. And I, I think I think it is going to be the most competitive World Cup we've had. But we'll probably be then saying that again in 2023 because there'll be more and more teams getting stronger and stronger. Yeah. Um, and, and that's going to be great to see as the, you know, as we're now a 2014 World Cup, you know, last World Cup was the first one where the women's went from 16 to 24. And and we had some imbalance games, but they had to make that increase to get more countries investing in, in, in their women's games, you know, because they know that they'd have a better chance of making the Women's World Cup. So that, you know, so three African teams had a chance instead of two, you know, three and a half for CONCACAF instead of two and a half more out of Europe. Most, most importantly. Um, Cause like when you look at the, the European teams that lost in those final playoffs, you know, um, Belgium and Switzerland, you know, Switzerland who was in it in 2015, like, you know, we know that they, they could possibly be stronger than, you know, some of the African teams or, or, or Jamaica, but it's just, it's great to see that growth and, and, and nice to know that there's, there's more and more competition for it, you know? Um, so I, I, you know, I can't wait to watch that because that to me is like the beginning of, of really, you know, the world cup year is now, you know, who's playing whom, when they're playing and everybody's potential path to, to the final, you know? Mm-hmm. So every, everything starts there, you know, until the draw, you're like, well, this could happen or this could happen or maybe I should buy tickets for this. But once the draw happens, like, okay, we're in season. Yeah, and I think um, the, some people don't care too much for draws. You know, they just think they're a bit long and, you know, a bit point. You know, we're all going to go there anyway. You know, why does it matter who plays who? But it's <laughs> so interesting, you know, because there's so many different ways can get drawn, you know, if England get a European team from the second pot, we can't get a European team from any of the other pots, you know, the US can't, you know, you guys can't draw one of the other CONCACAF teams. Right. So there's all these different, you know, permutations and, you know, you've got to look at the groups as well. I mean, I was looking at this the other week and some of the groups, you know, the travel is really tough, whereas some of the groups, you know, some of the cities and stadiums are really close to each other, so... There's even that, you know, that comes into it. You don't want to be flying between cities. You know, if you can just get on a coach and drive to your next location, um, that has a big influence as well because France is actually a big country. Right, but compared to Canada, where yes. you had a team at the end of the group stage fly from Moncton five time zones west <laughs> to Vancouver. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's a it's a huge improvement, but but it's a good point that every little part of it is a potential competitive advantage or competitive disadvantage. And 
I, you know, I, I like that that's something that is getting covered is getting talked about because it's, you know, I, I, I've ranted about this before. It's like, I don't need the, this is inspiring to girls, you know, storyline anymore. I I'm interested in this because of the sport and I want the sport coverage and coverage of the draw is, is the sport coverage. Who's going to play whom do they have a history you know, which group is the strongest, how does travel come into play, all, all of those elements. And, you know, so that, that's, that's going to be excited to finally get that, that, you know, women's world cup season underway and, and cool too, that we've got, we've got what four, I think four first time teams, Scotland, Jamaica, Chile, South Africa, those ones I can think of off the top of my head. I yeah. think those are the four newbies, you know. So that that that's always exciting too. Yeah. So Rich, thank you for for you know doing doing the work on that uh, on the top 100 footballers. It's just you know it's it's amazing what you guys did with with that the work on that ballot. And I can't imagine what it was like to then tally all of those, all of those ballots manually from all of your judges. But uh, are there any hints you want to give us about maybe surprises, uh, you know, coming down this week? No, not really. Cause I think the surprises <laughs> are probably always the bad ones. That's the issue. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting mix really. Cause I, we went into it and we always know some players are going to get voted a bit higher. Because of their reputation. You know, when people don't get to see a lot of women's football, they will vote for players they've heard of. Um, But I was worried going into it about players that maybe are not that well known around the world that have had fantastic years. And I wondered whether they'd get in. And most of them, bar one or two, have. And some of them are really high. Um, So that's been a real positive for me. And... For every bad, one probably is outweighed by the good ones. Um, so there are going to be some possibly unfamiliar names to people a little higher up. Um, I think the top 10 that we do on Friday is pretty solid. I think the 10 names, that well, you can argue about the order, uh, but I think the 10 names are pretty solid. And by Thursday, obviously, when we've done the, the first 90, people will probably be able to work those 10 names out. Um, and I think we've got probably the right winner. I think there was a few players that certainly make a case to win. Um, but I think, you know, we've, I think people will look at the top three, the top five, and I don't think there'll be too many arguments. And I, you know, once again, let me just say, appreciate you doing it. Uh, appreciate you doing all the work and, uh, look forward to, um, I, I'm hoping you'll be doing some, some live tweeting Saturday from the draw in Paris. I will be. All right. Thanks so much, Rich. No problem. Thanks for having me on. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. At last, the 24-team field is set for next summer's Women's World Cup in France. Cameroon and New Zealand were the final two teams to qualify. Cameroon by getting third place in African qualifying and New Zealand by winning Oceania, beating Fiji. So the final draw for next summer's tournament will be this Saturday, December 8th. And this is how it works. The 24 teams will be separated into four pots of six teams each. The pots will be separated by seed. So the highest sixth sixth ranked teams will be in the first pot, then the next six, then the next six, then the next six. Those rankings, it'll be based on the rankings that will be released Friday. So we won't have the official separation of the pots until Friday. Um, We're pretty sure, of course, that the U.S. being currently number one, Germany up there, England up there. Um, France up there, they're probably not going to move out of the top six. It's probably really the play for, for five, who's, who's five and six. So we'll get those rankings Friday. We'll know the four pots of six. And then what happens is you have, you're going to have six groups of four teams. So from the first pot, you take a name, you put it into each pot. Obviously France gets to be the first one as, as host. And then you go to the next pot and you, take a team 
and you put it in the pots. The only restriction is you can't have two CONCACAF teams in the same group. You can't have two Asian teams in the same group, etc. The only exception to that is, well, there's more than, than six European groups, so it's okay to have up to two European groups, uh, European teams in the same groups. I know this sounds confusing, uh, but I'll have graphics online uh, by Friday to make it a little less confusing. Also, ussoccer.com has a pretty handy video on Twitter and explanation on their website, ussoccer.com, if none of what I'm saying makes sense. So the draws this Saturday, uh, Fox Sports will be offering live coverage beginning approximately 11 a.m. Central, possibly before that. Um, it should, it'll probably also be streamed some places. So just keep your eye out for links. All right. After all that, (laughs) the next thing in the back four, mark your calendar. We've got the 2019 NWSL draft coming up on Thursday, January 10th. Uh, I think it starts at noon and it'll be in Chicago. It's always where the, the big coaches soccer convention is every January And yes, it'll be streamed live, and it is free and open to the public. So if you're anywhere near Chicago and you want to come watch the draft, you're more than welcome to. Most of the convention is restricted to registered attendees, but um, the NWSL draft is not. Also, uh, while you have your calendar out, maybe you want to make some travel plans. As Rich and I talked about, it's official that England will be hosting the 2021 Women's Euro. That'll be sometime summer 2021. And hey, you know, there's also the Tokyo Olympics, summer 2020, you know, never too early to start planning for some good soccer travel. And last thing for today, my updated NWCL almanac, including color photos, a complete player registry, coaching registry, all-time stat leaders, all kinds of great stuff. It's available now for pre-order if you go to keepernotes.com. The final 324-page color PDF will be ready in the next few days. Really, I'm so close. It's just proofing, proofing can kill sometimes. It's, it's, there's always finding one more little typo or discrepancy or something like that. Um, and older editions of the Almanac are available for purchase as well at KeeperNotes.com. And, of course, they are discounted. So that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. Appreciate everybody listening. Appreciate anybody who refers this podcast to a friend. And as always, much appreciation for my producer, Sean. But now she's everybody's girl.